community. All right, Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to be headed this morning. So I want to encourage you guys to make your way in your Bibles to the 19th chapter of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we'll continue our journey uh, through this book in chapter 19. And as you guys make your way that direction, let me just remind you where we were last week as we saw the Apostle Paul visiting the city of Corinth. In fact, he stayed there some 18 months and a church was planted there in Corinth by the Apostle Paul, a very uh, wicked city, a city that had all kind of sin issues, but what Paul says is where sin abounds, grace abounds more, and we see the grace of the Holy Spirit poured out over this city. Now, in chapter, as we got towards the end, I didn't point it out last week because it didn't flow as well with the message, but what we saw is actually the beginning of the third missionary journey. So the third and final missionary journey of the Apostle Paul begins there in chapter 18. And it, with each one of these missionary journeys, they all began there at the Gentile church, this original church that was the one that sent out Paul and Barnabas initially there in Antioch. So this is the Antioch there on the border between uh, Syria and what is modern-day Turkey. And this is the place that Paul begins each one of his three missionary journeys. And he began in chapter 18, verse 23, and he headed towards Galatia and Phrygia. This is that northern area along the uh, northern part of modern-day Turkey. And as after he left this area, he then traveled back south, and he's going to head towards the city of Ephesus. And this is the place where we're going to pick up in our study in chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, he stayed behind there teaching in Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And so for the Apostle Paul, he's now making his way back down to Ephesus, a place that he actually visited during his second missionary journey as he was making his way to Jerusalem. In fact, the people in Ephesus, they loved him there. They said, Paul, would you please stay? Would you stick around? And we looked at that in verse 21 last week. The reply was, if God is willing. If God is willing, then I will come back and hang out with you guys. And what we find is, uh, amazingly and wonderfully, uh, God was willing. And what I want to encourage you guys to do uh, as we get started this morning, a little sidebar, is uh, maintain yourself in the will of God. That in that place, if God is willing, as you go through your life and you allow him to direct your steps, that where he is willing, it is the safest place you could possibly be. It could look like the most dangerous place on the face of the earth, and yet if you are in God's will, you are perfectly and completely protected. And so the Apostle Paul, knowing this, having spent many a day on the missionary trail, he says, if God is willing, I'll be back. And so we see this is going to happen this morning. He comes back to Ephesus, and there at the end of verse 1, in finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul comes to this group of uh, men. They're gathered there in Ephesus, no doubt having some type of a Bible study or meeting. And as he arrives, he has this question for them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Paul is seeing this, and why would he ask this question? These guys are disciples. This is a much debated topic, by the way, among people way smarter than me. Did these guys know the Lord or did they not? And all I can see is that in black and white, they're called uh, disciples. They were, they were disciplined in some way. They, they were followers, and we're going to read here in a little bit of the teaching of John the Baptist. And so they were looking forward to the coming Messiah, but when uh, Paul arrives, he sees there's no passion. There's no excitement. There is just the, the, the brims. It is a low-key event. And he asked them, 
Boy, we could ask this at church sometimes, couldn't we? Have you yet received the Holy Spirit? This is the question as Paul looks upon them. And their answer back is uh, a little who dat, a little throw out there to the saint nation. Who, who are you talking about? Who dat? Holy Spirit. What, what do you mean by the Holy Spirit? So Paul has the answer to his question. In verse 3, And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And so they said, Into John's baptism, speaking of John the Baptist. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him, speaking of Jesus, whom would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, the men were about twelve in all. And so what we see is as Paul is speaking to them, he, he asked them this question, have you received the Holy Spirit? They'd only known the baptism of John. And just message was a simple one. It was re repent, turn your life around, for the Messiah is coming. And so these guys believed on what John had said, that the Messiah was coming. What they didn't know is Messiah had already been here. He'd already given his life for these men. He had laid it all down there upon the cross, his perfect work was finished so they were missing a part of the message and Paul was able to share with them that this is Jesus of Nazareth he's the Christ the Messiah that John was speaking of he has come and so as a result they were then baptized in the name of Jesus now this brings up the topic of what is man's relationship with the Holy Spirit there are three different prepositions used in the New Testament I'm going to try to make this easy to understand and not geek out too much but I think this is important for us to understand the relationships that mankind has with the Holy Spirit. Three different prepositions in the Greek. The first is a para. It, it, you, you can think of it like paired with, to come alongside. It's the same root word that we get the word parable from. And for each and every human being that is alive, the Holy Spirit is alongside, paired with. And what the Holy Spirit does is he directs. He guides. He reminds us of our need for a Savior. He is always pointing people back to their need for a Savior and to Jesus Christ. This is that way for every person until the point where he is blasphemed. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a continual denying of Jesus over and over and over again until a person has no more potential. For some people, that may be when they draw their last breath. For some folks, it is possible to actually blaspheme the Holy Spirit to the point where they have no more God conscience. They have no more potential to accept and to receive. They've hardened their heart to the point, like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, where God says he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, then God hardened his heart. It was final. He had no more potential. Now, for some people, that freaks them out. Maybe I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I was thinking a bunch of awful things. I'm afraid I did that. Here's the thing. If you're afraid that you might have at any point uh, blasphemed the Holy Spirit, Here's the good news. You didn't do it. <laughs> if you're afraid that you might have, you still have a consciousness that says there is a God, there is a God, there is a God. You have, you have an understanding that he is out there. And so you haven't been to that point yet. Now, scripturally speaking, one spot we can go to that Jesus speaks to this himself is John chapter 14, verse 17. I want to make sure we give scriptural backup to anything we're talking about because I know you guys, after Acts 17, you're all a bunch of Bereans. You're all studying the word of truth to make sure this pastor's staying on, on point.
point. Verse 17, Jesus says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. For these apostles, he was dwelling with them, alongside them, but he had yet to come inside them until after the resurrection. Jesus had to give his life in order for them to be able to receive within them, to have this next relationship. In fact, at the end of John 17, he says, For he dwells with you and will be in the, coming, in the time to come. He will be in you. This is that second preposition, the second relationship with the Holy Spirit. It is this word in or within. And at the point of salvation, this is where the Holy Spirit comes into a person that is accepting, into a person that believes that Jesus is the Son of God and that he laid down his life for you. It's a beautiful thing. And he comes then and dwells within us and becomes a Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is that glory that dwells in the life and the body of a believer. And if the death of Jesus is the payment for our sins and the resurrection is the receipt that the payment was accepted, then him dwelling within us, uh, that's the down payment. <laughs> that's your earnest deposit. What Jesus says in verse 18 is that of John 14 is, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. If I'm going to dwell inside you, and be, I'm going to come back. Praise the Lord for that, right? He is going to come back up for us, not leave us stranded as orphans. Now, in this relationship, much like blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, there is a negative side. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be uh, grieved within us to the point to where uh, we are. Think about it this way. If Jesus is in you, and you are living a life of perpetual sin, a sin cycle, refusing to get out of it, you are taking him to be a part of that. That is grieving. And by the way, if you know a Christian who is in a sin cycle and they have the Holy Spirit in them, you are going to uh, come into contact and interact with one miserable dude or dudette. <laughs> I mean, this, this person who is grieving the Holy Spirit, they are miserable. Why? Because Jesus is in them. They have the word of truth in them, and yet they're denying it. And so it's a, it's a terrible spot to be in grieving the Holy Spirit. But this is that point of salvation to draw that back to the emphasis. Now then the final relationship. So these disciples that Paul comes into contact with, they believed on the Messiah. They have Jesus quite possibly within them. We can debate that later. But this is the point. Paul arrives and there is no power in their meeting. The third relationship is this preposition, epi. It means upon the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. In Acts uh, chapter 1, we studied this several months ago. Acts chapter 1, the words that Jesus shares is, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in, all of, uh, in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is that third relationship, the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. The disciples he's speaking to, they'd already in John 20 received the Holy Spirit as Jesus breathed upon them after his resurrection. But they had no power because he had yet to give them the overpowering coming upon of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus says about this is you shall receive power. The word in the Greek is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. It's dynamite power, right? That's the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about, but it's not so we can use it and abuse it. It's for a very specific purpose so that we can become witnesses to him in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And so not to be used and abused, but instead to be used in this fashion. Now the question is, at least for me, you guys are more holy than me, so you might not have this question, but I did. How do I receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Over and over again, I've been in churches and grew up where a lot of this that we just talked about, this is terrifying. I mean, I ain't afraid of no ghost. I don't know about no ghost. I'm a little worried, a little freaked out about the Holy Ghost. And so to not have this empowerment of the Holy Spirit because we've got fear, we've got question marks, right? And so I had this prayer, like, what, what does this look like in my life? How could I have this power? I, I received a book from a friend on the power of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And my, my question was, how? I want this so badly. How do I receive it? And so as I was crying out to the Lord, I was actually flying back from a work meeting in an in, in airport in Baltimore. Apparently the Holy Spirit is actually in Baltimore. For any of you that wondered, right outside of D.C., the Holy Spirit is there, I can assure you, at least a little bit. And so I was praying to the Lord, what does this look like? Like, how, how can I receive this? And, and where I ended up in Scripture was in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. This is where the Lord took me. And in this spot, he says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What's that simple? All I needed to do was ask. And right there in that airport in Baltimore, I said, Lord, I want the Holy Spirit in my life. I want, I want this coming upon, this power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever this is going to look like, would you please let me have this as I cried out to him. And, and in that moment, I believe I received the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it didn't necessarily manifest like speaking in tongues. That is certainly a possibility. It happens oftentimes, but it didn't in my life. Now, we can get hung up on that, that there are folks that believe this has to be manifested in this way, except when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 describing the gifts of the Spirit, he said that there are many gifts, but the same Spirit. There are many manifestations of the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's the same Jesus. That's the point. So for me, it didn't look like speaking in tongues in the airport. Thankfully, I might have got arrested speaking in tongues in the airport. It didn't look like that, but what I did notice in my life is uh, my teaching changed. Something happened. My worship changed. There was a different worship relationship I had with my Heavenly Father. And the, the other awesome thing that began to happen is people around me began to accept Jesus. And it wasn't all in what my words were or what I, I was saying things in just the right way. It was the power of the Holy Spirit because why does Jesus say they're given that? To be witnesses. It was a powerful boldness and a witness uh, to him. And so I want to encourage you guys, if you're lacking that power, it is as simple as asking for it. Lord, please give this to me. I want the Holy Spirit in this relationship in my life. Now, back to the text at hand. I've been sidetracked long enough. Verse 8, And he, Paul, went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left him, and the evil spirits went out of them. And so here's the Apostle Paul. 
He, he does what he loves to do. He goes first into the synagogue. He can't help himself. He's got to go first to the Jew because they've got the oracles of Scripture. He takes to them that Jesus is the Messiah that's spoken of in the Old Testament. But, as usual, he gets kicked out. They give Paul the boot, and so he makes his way instead to this house of Tyrannus, and he sets up a school of ministry there. For two years, he's got a school where people can come and learn about Jesus. You've got to love the determination of the Apostle Paul. And what you find is as you study through these New Testament epistles, there are several churches, including the one in a Colossae, that had never actually even had Paul visit them personally. But yet this was a church that was planted because of one of these teachers who came and learned from the Apostle Paul in Ephesus and went back and planted a church. We see the word of God going out from this school as Paul taught there for two years. He stayed in Ephesus, but it wasn't always easy. It was not always roses for the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians, he writes to them, and he's actually writing from Ephesus when he writes this letter to the Corinthians. And what he says in verse 32 is, uh, I have fought with the beasts of Ephesus. (laughs) He is saying, look, I have been in the battle. I've been in the trenches with the beasts at Ephesus. And then in chapter 16, verse 8, this is what Paul says about Ephesus again. He says, I will tarry in Ephesus until the Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened for me. Praise the Lord. Doors are beginning to open for Paul in Ephesus. But the end of that verse says, and there are many adversaries. (laughs) A great door is opened, but boy, I'm getting a lot of pushback. Isn't that amazing? Like here's the Apostle Paul, and he is not willing to quit because of the pushback. He is getting people pressing against him. Beasts are coming against him there at Ephesus, and yet he did not quit. And i got to tell you, in all honesty, when I get the beasts coming up against me, and I feel like I've got adversaries and things are pressing in, uh, the truth is my natural inclination in my flesh, (laughs) I'm ready to quit. I'm going to tap out, especially when it comes to spiritual things. Isn't it that way with us in church? When when it involves spiritual matters and things get difficult and they get tough, our natural inclination is, uh, I'm not going to press any harder. I'm not going to keep going. It's time for me to just go someplace. I'm going to stay home today. It's not going to work for me. Sorry, Jesus. But here's the thing. Notice with me in verse 11, as Paul presses in and he continues and he keeps going, that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Amazing miracles were happening. Why? Because he did not quit. See, the reality is uh, pain and suffering and and processing through and not quitting are often the seedbeds for the miraculous. That we do not see miracles in our lives because we pull out too quick. We stop too soon. We, we don't continue to press in and to press on. And here's the Apostle Paul. And look at the things that are, that are happening. Handkerchiefs and aprons. A handkerchief, this word, is, is, is essentially a sweat rag. Paul's got a sweatband on. Why? Because he is working. Paul's pattern was to work in the morning, and it was so brutally hot at this time in Ephesus, they would work from 7 in the morning until about 11, and then they would stop in the heat. And what did Paul do? He went to Tyrannus' house. And he taught the Bible. He taught the Bible until about 4 p.m. that evening, and then they would go back out and go to work until 10 or 11 that night. Paul was working for the people. He was sweating. 
Why? Because he loved them. He so loved them, he went into this bivocational ministry as a tent maker. His apron was one of a blacksmith. He was working there through love for the people. And so hit the sweat of his efforts, his endurance, because of this, he got to see miraculous things happen there in Ephesus because he did not quit. Now verse 13, And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And so they began to see these miraculous things happening at the hands of the Apostle Paul. And they said, this is pretty awesome. We will start to exercise these demons. Now, this gives you a little bit of insight into the spiritual state of Ephesus. A lot of wickedness going on, so much so there's a whole band of uh, Jewish itinerant priests that would go around exercising, casting off demons. And they see the success that Paul is having, and so they begin to try to formulate, what is Paul doing? What is the formula that Paul is executing in order to exercise these? If I could just get the pattern right, God would do what I ask him to do. You ever done that to God? <laughs> right? Boy, Lord, if I just prayed in this certain way, if I just laid it all out in the pattern you'd have me to do, uh, then maybe you'll answer my prayers. This is what these guys try to do. And then, Along with them, in verse 14, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Even these Jewish sons of Sceva, this high priest, they were also trying to do things in the same way as the Apostle Paul. But here's the thing. As they try to copy his ministry, as they try to copy what God is up to in Paul's life, they had no personal relationship with Jesus. That's the key piece, you see. It's not possible for us to just have a relationship through someone else. It's a one-on-one -on -one relationship. God has many children. He has no grandchildren. So it doesn't matter what grandma or great-grandma believed. Jesus wants a personal relationship with each and every one of us. And there is no substitute for knowing him on a personal level. And these guys are going to find that out the hard way. Verse 15, And the evil spirit answered and said, this is one of my favorite verses in all Acts. Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? So here they're in the middle of this exorcism. They are trying to exorcise a demon, and this demonic spirit turns its head, maybe all the way around, who knows, this might be like the movies, and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? It's that point in time that if I'm in this spot without a personal relationship with Jesus, i got to tell you, I'm probably wetting myself, and my answer is going to be something like, <laughs> that's about all I'd be able to articulate. And so here these guys are questioned about, where are you putting your faith? Where are you placing your faith? Is it in a personal relationship with Jesus? Or is it because you heard about him from somebody down the street, a neighbor, a friend, my grandma, right? Is this the relationship you have or is it a personal relationship? Because if this is the question and you are looking into the eyes of this evil spirit, you're going to want to make sure you've got some credentials. You're going to want to make sure you have a personal relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, verse 16, we see the result. And then the man whom the evil spirit was, leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house 
naked and wounded. Now, I'm not going to pretend to you like I'm some uh, expert when it comes to a, a or being involved in fights, but I have been involved in a few tussles in my day. Uh, and I will submit to you, never one time in all the tussles I've either been in or been a witness to have I ever seen a dude take such a beat down that his pants literally got beaten off of him. But these guys, this demon jumps up and literally beats the pants right off of him and sends him running. And then as I'm studying this week, I'm like, what in the world am I supposed to do with that? Like some dude's getting his pants beaten off. But then praying through this, I realized that um, when I'm not in a right relationship with Jesus, when I don't have the protection of God, uh, this is very much what it's like when evil comes against me. I have felt like that before. Like, I'm in this spot, I don't know how to get out of it, and I'm literally getting my pants beaten off of me, and the reason is I don't have the protection of God in my life. Let me tell you, if you come into a match with Satan, you do not want to enter into that arena without the protection of Jesus. I think it's important to point out that God does not need us for protection. We lots of times get really excited about protecting God. It's, it's easy for us to bust out the God stick. The God squad shows up. I'm going to give you a good Holy Spirit whooping. But you see, got us for protection. Not at all. We need him. We need him to come alongside and stop this kind of thing from happening. A right and personal relationship with Christ. Now, verse 17. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Isn't this amazing? Here's an evil spirit that turns his head and pronounces a curse upon these men who did not believe, and yet, what's the result? The name of Jesus is still magnified. His name is still what goes forth. Even the very demons testify of the power of Jesus, you see. This is the result. They have no power. In fact, many people come to believe because this story goes forth. Jesus is so powerful. Paul's preaching the resurrected Christ. It is so powerful that even in this spot, he is magnified. And the people come out in droves. There's so much black magic and things happen. So much evil. They've all got these magic books for seances and who knows. And, and they, they take all these books in the middle of the city and they burn them right there the value of which was 50,000 pieces of silver. That is the equivalent of 1,500 days' worth. This was not an insignificant amount of money that these things were worth. And thinking about how this relates to us, I want to encourage you, as, as the Lord reveals things that you need to deal with in your life, the magic book hidden in the closet, the things that we don't necessarily always want to talk about, or the big-time sins that He wants us to deal with, I want to encourage you to burn them. Take those things out and set fire to them. The consecrated offering that was offered in the Old Testament was a sin offering, and what the Lord had them do was burn it completely at the altar. Don't leave anything. And the reason 
is, is for us to understand with sin in our life, we need to set fire to that. Burn it. What we tend to do far too often is we got storage units, right? Okay, Jesus is dealing with this. We'll put that in the shed for a little bit. We'll put this off to the side. I'm going to put it in a tote in the basement. I'm just going to hang on to it for a little bit. Or even worse, hey, I'm going to take it, I'm going to yard sale it. I mean, other Christians should surely be blessed if I sell my awful and terrible things, right? We do that. We take the things that we're being dealt with and we put them in storage sheds and we put them in totes and we hang on to them. But here's the thing. Uh, when we don't deal with the remnants, they will eventually come back to deal with us. I want to encourage you guys when it comes to sin in your life and the things that the Lord is revealing to you that you need to deal with, deal with it viciously. Deal with it immediately. Take that thing out and burn it. And here's the benefit, one of many benefits, is we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our life so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. If you want the word of the Lord to grow mightily and prevail in your life, burn up all the junk. Stop allowing these empty calories in our life to take hold. What are empty calories? It's things that just are time wasters, right? I found myself a few weeks ago, I'm on the book of face for like 30 minutes. I didn't even know what I was looking for. I just started scrolling through stuff. The next thing you know, I'm like, you know what? I got to delete the stupid app. I just had to get rid of it. I'm not suggesting to delete Facebook. Don't come up here and get all upset with me. But what I'm saying is when you find these empty calories, there was nothing beneficial that I was looking at. Just scrolling, and the Lord convicted me. What could you do with that time? What could you do with that for me? What could you do spending time with me that you sting empty calories? And so he encouraged me to do away with it. That's the kind of thing where we waste time. We waste energy all the time on that. Now, verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must go to Rome. And so what Paul deeply desired was ultimately to go to Rome, but not as a sightseer, as a soul winner. Paul wanted to go to the capital of the Roman Empire, and he wanted to preach the gospel. And here's the thing. God is going to allow him to do that in just a few chapters. We're going to get to see it. It's not going to be in the way he thought. He's going to go in handcuffs, but he is going to get to appear before Caesar. God is going to lead him to Rome. Now, verse 22. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And so Paul's getting ready to prepare to leave Ephesus. And so in preparation, he sends two of his disciples, Timothy and Erastus, to go into Macedonia, that's where Philippi's at, ahead of himself. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no, that brought no small profit to the craftsmen, him, the craftsmen, together with the workers of similar occupation, and said, Men, you know we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that these are not gods which are made with hands. So verse 27, not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into dispute, but the temple of 
the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom Asia and the world worship. And so now we see uh, that Ephesus, one of the issues that they have with this spiritual darkness that exists, resides in the goddess of uh, Diana. Now, I didn't put a picture up there of this, these little idols that they would sell because it's so disturbing. I didn't really want to give you that on a Sunday morning. But they're these weird little uh, short blob-looking creatures that have breasts all around her. It's very odd, very disturbing looking. And she was the goddess of uh, fertility. And so you can imagine the kind of worship that happens there in Ephesus with the goddess of fertility, very much like we talked about last week with Aphrodite and the temple prostitutes. And so you've got this kind of activity taking place. And for this man, Demetrius, his concern is his income stream. The silversmith, a maker of these little idols, they sold them all over the region. And what he's saying is, uh, we're going to lose our living if Paul keeps preaching this way. That not only us, but all the other idol makers throughout all of Asia, they're going to lose their living because of Paul's preaching. We're going to have to stand up and see something done. Now, in the Welsh Revival of 1901, something very similar happened. A man by the name of Robert Murray McShane, he began to preach there in northern Great Britain. And as he preached the word of God, what happened is for this area that struggled mightily with alcoholism is... Uh, the taverns began to close. People began to stop going to the taverns because of the preaching of Robert Murray McShane. And here's the interesting thing. Do you know how many messages that he preached against alcohol? Zero. He did not preach a single message against alcohol. But what happened is, as people began to take on the Holy Spirit, the superior spirit against the poor spirits of imitation, they just lost their desire. They just absolutely lost their desire to go to the taverns whatsoever. People began to change. Their hearts began to change, and no longer were they fighting symptoms, which, by the way, is what the church has tried to do over these centuries. Out the stick, like we're playing whack-a-mole, and we start a whack, 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 whack. We begin to try to put out all the symptoms, but here's the thing. There is no substitute for the Holy Spirit. When he enters into a life, it is amazing how things begin to fall off. And no longer do we have to play whack-a-mole with people. It was, this was so dramatic for these Welsh people in 1901 that as they were working out in the fields, they used uh, mules or donkeys to actually uh, do the labor. But in, as they were using the mules and donkeys, they would beat them and they would curse at them and they would yell at these animals to get them to do what they wanted. But as Jesus began to invade these people, they couldn't muster up enough anger to even yell and beat their donkeys anymore. And so before long, the donkeys just couldn't. <laughs> They're like, hey, this isn't the way you used to treat me. They would literally just lay down and stop doing any work altogether. They've been so used to being beaten. And here's the thing. As we look in our society and we begin to get upset by all the things that are wrong, that we wish changed, I wish that weed shop would shut down or this lotto place would close. Lord, why don't you just go close them all? And we get out the stick and we want to start playing whack-a-mole. Let me encourage you. What needs to happen is the Holy Spirit. He needs to come in and invade the hearts and lives of people, and we won't have a single other problem like that. They'll just close. Businesses have to turn a profit if they're going to operate. Demetrius is so upset because people just began to turn away. There's no more need for these idols. And the thing is, 
This is what we possess. We have the very light of Jesus. And what John chapter 1 says is that the dark cannot extinguish the light. The dark doesn't stand a chance against the light. Now, verse 28. And now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater in one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonians and Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow it. And so as this disaster begins to occur and the mob mentality starts to happen is that people just rush into the theater. And many of them didn't even know why they were going there. This looks like any kind of riot you would see on TV. There are many people, they don't believe in the cause at all. They just show up because it looks like a riot's happening. That's what's happening here in Ephesus. They just show up there at the theater, and Paul's first inclination, his mindset was, well, I better go preach. This looks like a great crowd to teach in front of. Now the disciples, they're not nearly as excited about Paul going in front of them. Verse 31, Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, speaking about sent sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. These guys that Paul had led to the Lord, they said, Paul, please don't go out there in front of this mob. Verse 33, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. And so Alexander motions his hand. He wants to go out and stop this. Why? Because what these people knew was if Rome finds out, that we're having any kind of a riot, uh, they're going to come deal with things. This is the issue when uh, riots happen in the Roman Empire. They would deal with them by force. They would put this down completely and totally. And so when we see in Jesus' day, uh, or after Jesus' day in 70 AD, as the Jews began to rise up in Jerusalem, what happened is the Roman Empire stepped in and wiped out uh, all of Jerusalem in 70 AD because of this very sort of thing. And these guys in Ephesus, they knew this, and they wanted to stop any kind of a riot from happening. So they call out Alexander, who was a Jewish man. Why? Because Paul looked very Jewish. Like, this is one of your guys. Come up here and speak to what's going on. Now, verse 34. But when they had found out that he was a Jew, speaking of Alexander, and probably even of Paul, all with one voice, the people in the crowd cried for two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And when the quieted the crowd, he said to them, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian, the great goddess Diana, and of the image which fell down from Zeus? And so this... Uh, this guy who's probably mayor of the city had to come out and try to quiet the crowd. But think about this. These folks gathered him for two hours straight. They cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! I mean, this is some kind of a riot. And we look at, at scenes that happen in the Middle East and the way they can gather together. And with great amount of endurance, they can chant and revolt and protest. And at least in our Western culture, we go, man, why would you stick with something that long? Like, how could you stay for two hours in protest? That's some kind of passion. You have to actually admire it. And the thing is, uh, we're going to turn on the TV tonight to watch the Super Bowl. And you know what we're going to find? People chanting and cheering and yelling for three hours. The question is, where's your passion at? Right? We get really excited about the pigskin going from this side of the field to that side. We'll sit there for hours and cheer and yell. 
Great are the Bengals of Cincinnati. Great are the Rams of Los Angeles. Over and over again, we'll chant and chant, all excited. Imagine what that would look like if we had that kind of passion for Jesus. Imagine if we would not give up with that kind of passion, if we worshiped like that. What kind of a move could he make in our lives? Now, verse 36. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. This mayor is now encouraging the people, don't do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of the temple nor blasphemers of your goddess. You brought these guys in with no basis. So what he's saying, verse 38, Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproars, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. He's speaking about when Rome comes calling, we don't have a good reason for this uproar. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, as we wrap up and we see this great riot that has happened here in Ephesus, a few things I wanted to point out as we head down the home stretch. Uh, first of which, it's amazing what reasonable people can do in the face of unreason. And so here you've got a very reasonable man. He says, look, if you've got a court case against Paul or any of his group, uh, the courts are open. Take it to court, do the right thing, handle this in the right way. And, I, and as I was trying to relate this back to us, this is the role we play as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our life. That it is amazing how many times the Holy Spirit can bring a calm to a situation, a peace to a situation, if we'll just simply allow it. And here's the thing, as you allow Him to work in your life and we get all worked up, question yourself in this way. Uh, haven't we already won the fight? <laughs> like the battle's already won, right? We've already read the end of the book. Hopefully you've read the end of the book. If not, I'd encourage you, read the end of the book. You win. Good news. We've already won the battle, so we get so stirred up and worked up. But oftentimes what God will do is put you in a position, having the Holy Spirit reside in you, to put down these kind of conflicts, whether it be in your family, in the workplace, handling things reasonably with a level head, knowing that we've already won the battle. The war's over. The second thing to point out is that we are not, when we go into these battles, fighting against flesh and blood. It can look like that oftentimes. Paul addresses this in Ephesians 6. This is a famous set of scriptures in verse 10. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, and put on the whole armor of God. You may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul's listing out rankings of evil beings, demonic spirits. He's saying we are not fighting against flesh and blood. It looks like that on the surface level, but there are evil spirits at play here. They are residing, by the way, this is a little sidebar, in heavenly places. I want you to understand there are three different heavens out there. The first heaven is what we are seeing right now. This is the practical, physical space. Paul speaks when he was sent to heaven. What does he say? I knew a man who was taken up to the third heaven. 
understand there is no evil or demonic spirit in God's heaven. It ain't happening. There's no evil there. But there is a space, a spiritual realm. You can call it the second heaven that is between uh, us on this space and the heavenly scene where God resides, the third heaven. Now, as you think about that, I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, before I lose you completely. Now he's talking about multiple heavens. What in the world? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul writes, And we are raised up together, and he has made us to sit together in places in Christ Jesus. As a believer in Jesus Christ, understand this, you are already seated and placed in Christ Jesus in the third heaven. Above any demonic spirit or force or any of these realms or powers or principalities that wig us out. They freak us out. But when we begin to fight against flesh and blood and against people, you understand the tears what we do is we bring our fight down to the first heaven. And now these evil forces, they begin to have some say in what happens. Remember where you are positioned. Remember where you're seated next to the Father in Christ Jesus at his right hand. There is no need to fight on that level. Fight in the level where we've already won, seated in Jesus. Now we've got the upper hand. Now we've already won the game. And here's where Paul goes at the end of Ephesians this chapter 6. I know I'm jumping around, but as he talks about the full armor of God, he says in verse 17, and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How do we have any power? How do we have any offensive weapon whatsoever? He only lists one offensive weapon in Ephesians 6, and it is the Word of God. So you have position, you have a weapon. It's right here in your hands, and why? I implore you, I implore you, I beg of you to read it. Spend time in it. There is no way we have that we can battle against these evils without the word of God let it be let it permeate into you let it reside in your heart memorize those key verses those promises of God because it can be so very difficult when you're in the heat of the moment but you folks are seated at the right hand of the father you have position you have authority and you have a weapon if we'll spend time in it Thirdly, the revival of the church can often bring a revolution to society. We want to go out and create revolution and upturn things and stop this and stop that. Back to the whack-a-mole example. We want all these things to stop, but it's revival in the church that actually brings about a revolution of society. When people willingly just give things up that seem to be such a part of the fabric of their life, that's miraculous, by the way. And then what happens is we begin to sow Peace into people's lives. What do we want to see in our society but peace? James chapter 3, verse 18 says that peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Who doesn't want a harvest of righteousness in their life? That sounds like a great harvest. My problem is oftentimes I don't sow peace. I'm in discord, my own frustration, and then I'm surprised when it comes back at me. What? How'd that grow up in my garden? Well, you sowed it. <laughs> but what if we were peacemakers sowing peace we could bring up a harvest of righteousness and then watch how society actually flips watch how things begin to turn around us in our own neighborhoods lastly and finally here's the last point 
if Paul quits, when it got hard, none of this happens. None of this takes place in Ephesus if Paul hangs it up. When he's fighting against the beasts, when they're coming up against him and the, the difficult things that happen, the adversaries are coming against him, none of these miraculous things take place. And when I was thinking about that, kind of wrapping things up in my mind this week, remembering the words of Jesus when he says in Matthew 17, 20, as he's teaching this simple parable, he says, if you only had the faith of a mustard seed, right? That you could tell this mountain to throw itself into the sea and it would happen. Now we get off on that verse and we look at it and we go, well, Jesus is talking about my little bitty faith. Jesus is saying, if you only had the faith of a mustard seed, if you only had little bitty faith, they go, well, that's all I got, little bitty faith. But that's not really the point that Jesus make. He was saying, I know you have a little bitty faith. <laughs> I've already seen it. You don't have much faith. The issue is, you keep taking it out of the fight. Are you willing to take your little bitty mustard seed sized faith that Jesus already knows that's all you can have? That's all you have been able to muster up so far. Are you willing to keep it in the fight? Are you willing to leave it there until the miraculous happens? Oftentimes we don't see it because we want to take it back. We want to go home and run. But think about how many miracles in Jesus' ministry happened after years. Blind people receiving sight. That's a miracle. Praise the Lord. I love the miraculous. Yeah, that dude was blind for 40 years. Four decades he spent not being able to see. How much pain would be involved in that? But what a beautiful thing when he receives sight, right? We pull our faith out of the fight. When there's that loved one, and we're so sure they're never going to get it turned around, boy, I'm going to pull my faith out. It's not going to happen. That'd take a miracle. Yeah, you're right. That's what we need. The miraculous. Leave it in the fight. That work relationship that's been destroyed, that's never going to be restored. I'm going to pull my faith out of that thing. My boss, jerkwad, he's never going to come to know Jesus. Just quit. See you, stink town. Head to the next spot. What about offering them up in prayer? That marriage that we've let things go too far, I'm pretty sure I'm never going to get to that point with my wife ever again or my husband ever again. We're never going to be in a right relationship together. Don't take your faith out of the fight. It may not be very much, but it's all Jesus needs for a miracle to happen. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for mustard seed faith. Lord, would you give us faith to keep our faith in the fight? I think about the man in Mark who wanted to see his son healed. And Jesus said, if you believe, nothing is impossible. And the man said, Lord, I believe. Now help my unbelief. Lord, lots of times that's us. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Father, would you please do just that in here today? Would you encourage us? Come alongside us. Thank you that we can trust your track record. We get to see through the lives of these people how you work continuously on people like Paul, people like his disciples. Lord, thank you so much. Father, would you please continue to even take the themes for evil, and use them for good. 
Holy Spirit, you are welcome in our lives. Father, I do want to pray that over this group. Lord, please help them to receive the power of the Holy Spirit so that these Bible studies and worship settings and all the things that have no power, no passion, they don't have to be like that any longer. Lord, you can use us. Use us as vessels to be witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Mattoon and EIU and Heritage Woods, Lord. So many places that we need your power to be witnesses. Thank you, Father, for what you're up to. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. time of desperation when all we know is doubt and fear there is only one foundation we believe we believe In this broken generation When all is dark you help us see There is only one salvation We believe We believe We believe in God the Father, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion, we believe that He conquered death, we believe in the resurrection, and He's coming back again. We believe. So let our faith be more than anthems, greater than the songs we sing. And in our weakness and temptations, we believe. We believe. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that He conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. And He's coming back again. Let the lost be found and the dead be raised in the here and now. The loving made let the church live loud. God will say we believe, we believe. And the gates of hell will not prevail. For the power of God is toward the veil. Now we know your love will never fail. We believe, we believe, we believe. 
God the Father, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion, believe that He conquered death. We believe in the resurrection, and He's coming back, He's coming back And the church says, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for that. I want to encourage you guys as you go uh, through your week this week, and uh, there are things that are hard. Repeat that. I believe. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that he conquered death. I believe, even when everything else becomes so difficult, believe in that. Trust on that. He's not going to let you down. I encourage you guys to come out tonight. Uh, again, we'll have an awesome time with our Super Bowl party. Uh, Jake and Michaela are going to be doing the halftime show, so sorry if you're a big Dr. Dre Snoop Dogg fan. I don't think you're not doing any gangster music. No gangster rap. Uh, uh, you know, not tonight. But uh, they're going to be doing a little halftime worship setting, so probably slightly more appropriate than what's going to be going on at the Super Bowl. So uh, just come on out and enjoy uh, some soup and some ice cream together. I look forward to being with you guys tonight. God bless. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.